Today's reading will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. That's on page 1046 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be lost in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Here ends the reading. You may be seated, and the children may be dismissed for children's worship. Thank you, Alex. Um, today, as we turn within our passage, uh, go into our passage, Matthew 18, we are in our series entitled Fit Church, exploring the nine marks of a healthy church body. And as I, I was thinking about this subject, church discipline, I know that it's not a fun topic. It's, about, it's almost as fun as talking about taxes. Um, we just don't enjoy it. It seems people seem like it's irrelevant. Let me just talk about me and Jesus. But that's not it at all. Matter of fact, church discipline is something that God has given unto us, and it is a key mark of God's church, of what is to be a healthy church. And I want us to make sure that we turn in the book of Matthew to book of Matthew chapter 18. And as you're doing so, if you haven't already, I would like to tell, with you, tell you a story. Uh, and it's a, as I was thinking on this message and contemplating what I was preaching, um, an old TV show came to my mind. How many of you remember the TV show Bonanza? Okay, I know it's a little old school, uh, but Bonanza, I remember watching this episode of Bonanza, and I never was a big Bonanza watching, watching for whatever reason, this, this one episode stuck out of my mind. And of course, it centers around the Cartwright clan. You had Ben, Adam, uh, Hoss, and Little Joe. And they, they had, uh, were always standing against injustice in Virginia City. And, and there was this one moment where uh, this one bad guy named Farmer Perkins ends up killing this um, business owner. And uh, because he ran with the local thugs, no one would do anything to him. And, uh, but it really bothered the car rights. And so even the, the sheriff, he, he, rather than deal with it, he resigns his commission, his post, and he gives Adam, um, he deputizes Adam to be the sheriff, to take over being the sheriff. So Adam goes and arrests Farmer Perkins, and the law says, I mean, there were witnesses to it, the law says that he is to be hanged um, at sunset. And so he gets ready to proceed with Farmer Perkins hang, hanging when this, the guy that he works for, this uh, local tyrant named Sam Bryant, finds out. He says, you can't hang him. So what he does is, is he captures the Cartwright's father, Ben. And he says to them, if you hang Farmer Perkins, I'm going to hang your dad. So the choice is yours. So they face a dilemma. Do, what do we do? Do we uphold the law and hang him? Or do we, do we let it go so our dad will be safe? So they decide to proceed. And Adam goes through with it, even though his brothers are pleading with him. He says, we're going to go through and follow the law, even though our own father will be killed. And so that's exactly what they do. I mean, even the farmer himself didn't think he was going to be hanged. He didn't think that they would have the courage to do it. But they hang him. They give him the death penalty. 
And when Sam Bryant, who has their father away, has the noose around his neck, sees that they're going to follow through the law, he's fearful because he knows that if he hangs Ben Cartwright, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be hanged. So the next scene, you see uh, Sam Bryant walking saying, hey, no harm, no foul. I didn't do anything to him, so I'm okay. And see, what he he saw there was that they were willing to follow the law, and then it caused him to have fear because he knew that they weren't going to let him get by with anything. Now, it's the same kind of principle that we're going to be looking at today with church discipline, that when we follow God's law and we're doing what he wants to do, then others see and note that God, that means other things are going to be called to an account. It's meant to discipline us so that we can stand in fear of who God is, knowing that God is going to call us to an account. And like I said before, church discipline is about as exciting to many of us as taxes. We dread the, the concept of it. We don't understand it. It doesn't seem to be relevant in our day and age. But it's not always been that way within church history. Church discipline was a key element. Matter of fact, in the antebellum South, if you would have told a, a normal person that a church didn't practice church discipline, they'd say that it's not really a church. And we've seen today in our therapeutic, morally relativistic world today, which is more about an audience-driven Christianity, where we want to make everybody happy with all of their different issues, church discipline is, seemed to be passe. But I think one of the reasons that, in some ways, Christianity has become irrelevant within our world today is because we have failed to uphold church discipline and the unity and purity of His church because we, God wants to show us that for us to be truly effective, we have to be reminded of who God is and who we are. And that means exhibiting tough love to one another, calling one another to an account for our behavior. So today we're going to see um, and learn about tough love. And we can see this is within the, the scriptures as we just read. But we see that its basis is in God himself, in Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. We're going to be flipping back and forth through a variety of scriptures today. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, we get a huge picture of what discipline is, in that God himself disciplines us, trains us. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, we read this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So God disciplines because he loves us. He doesn't want to excuse our behavior. And in churches today, you see that many people don't want to discipline because they're afraid people won't come. I am of the opposite perspective, meaning that if you honor God, he will honor you. If you do what God wants you to do, he will take care of the rest. Because when you honor God, it doesn't matter about the crowds. God will, be, God will attract people to himself because people are seeking to follow his word and do what he wants us to do. Now, what is the goal then of discipline? Well, if you skip down, in, uh, not in verse 6, but verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 12, we see that uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is then the the purpose of it? To lead us to righteousness to look like Jesus. So today we're going to talk about what discipline is, what it's not, and why it's important to us as a body of believers. And we're going to see different facets of it, where it leads us to go, why we need to do it, 
the process that is involved in going about it and see the product of where it leads if we do it and how God will bless us if we seek to follow his word. But let's pause for a moment asking God's blessing on our message time together. Father, we come into your presence eager for you to speak to us. Lord, open up wide our hearts to help us see who you are. Uh, to see why discipline is important and why we need to, to see it practiced in our lives and in our churches for the glory of your name. Lord, for those who are struggling, that are going through a very hard time, or Lord, for those who are living in sin, I pray you show yourself. I sh- for those who are struggling, I pray that you lift them up. For those that are, are weary of doing good, I, I pray that you show them that they will reap a harvest if they do not give up. And for those that are holding on to their sin, Lord, I pray that you show yourself to be holy that we all might stand in fear of you for the glory of your name. We pray a blessing on this message time. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump right in. First of all, there are two types of discipline. This isn't in your notes. There is formative discipline, which is what's happening right now. As I proclaim the word of God, as we open up the word of God together, and the word of God is taught, it is forming us and changing us to be more like the image of Christ. And that, that happens in Sunday schools, it happens in Bible studies, it happens in small groups. That is formative church discipline. That is, not, uh, um, that is what hap- it's going on all the time. But then there is corrective church discipline. Now, corrective church discipline is more what we're talking about today. This is spiritual surgery. This is the confrontational when someone is involved in something that they're not supposed to be in. If we were to look at it um, and illustrate it from a health perspective, um, or we were to compare discipline in the body of Christ to discipline in a physical body, then formative discipline would be eating correctly and exercising. That's formative discipline. Corrective discipline would be like surgery. So those are the two differences, and today we're going to be focusing on the surgery part of it. But I want to begin with, what is church discipline? I want to give you a definition. This isn't in your notes, but here's a good definition. It is God's prescribed policy of dealing with Christians. This is not for non-Christians. These are for those who claim to be followers of Jesus, who are caught in sin, who are in conflict with each other, or who live in contradiction to his word so that they may turn from sin and back to the Savior. Now, I'll be drawing out this definition a variety of ways. It's, it's God's prescribed policy. We didn't make this up. God did. He's laid it without within his word. And it's for dealing with those who are caught in sin. Now, a sin can be a sin of commission, something they're actively doing, or omission, something that they refuse to do. For example, if a man was refusing to love his wife and take care of his children then that is a form of discipline needs to be implemented if he refuses to listen to that. So for those who are caught in sin, who are in conflict with each other, you can't just be in the body of Christ and, and, and pretend like everything's okay. If you are in conflict, then we need to have a mediation for you to resolve that conflict. Or who live in contradiction to his word, just live in a lifestyle that God doesn't... Um, that the word of God does not condone at all, or entertaining even ideas that are against the word of God, or promoting things that are against the word of God, so that they may turn from sin and back to the Savior. Now, why do we do it? First of all, God's holiness demands it. His holiness demands it. That God is separate, and he wants to show that his people are separate. That if we're followers of him, then we need to be representatives of his truth. So God's, God's holiness and his glory demands it. The scriptures unapologetically declare it. 
The scriptures lay it forth. We're going to see not only in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be going into a variety of scriptures, um, as well as 1 Corinthians 5, parking on 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew chapter 18. And we see that the, the scriptures unapologetically declare it. And lastly, his church must display it. So we as the body of Christ, if we seek to be true Christ followers, we see that this is not optional. This is not something that we can have just as you buy a car and you might have the basic model of car or you can get a sunroof or heated seats. And some people think, well, I can have the basic model of Christianity or church and then have these things extra on top of it. No, that is not it. This is essential to the church as the tires, the wheels are. This is part and parcel of God's church. And you're going to see a lot of churches have departed from it. And we ask ourselves, are they truly a church if they don't do it? So we go back and say, what does the Word of God say about these things? Now, I want to begin with some preliminaries. Um, church discipline is, is a form of God's tough love to us. When we are in error, um, when we are turned away from God, and for us to appreciate what this means, or, um, it requires us discovering, first of all, the purpose of church discipline. I want you to write that down. That's the first thing that you need to have in your notes. What is the purpose of church discipline? And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, and that is on page 954 of your pew Bible. And we're going to be walking through not just Matthew 18, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and as you turn there, we're looking at Paul speaking to the church of Corinth, and the church of Corinth was pretty messed up. There was sexual immorality, there was abuse of spiritual gifts, there was disunity, uh, there was abuse of communion or the Lord's Supper, all of these things were going on. And Paul speaks to the midst of this group of people in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. I'm going to read through all of this passage because I believe it is absolutely important and essential to discovering the purpose of church discipline. Paul, by the Spirit, writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife sleeping with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, or yeast. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, here's some things that we can see. 
What is the purpose of church discipline? First of all, church discipline shows the severity of sin. It shows the severity of sin. Sin cannot be played with. No more that you can play with a cobra. Sin is serious. We have this tendency to minimize it as a character fault, to play with it, to excuse it away, to find ways to legitimize our sin. But this shows the severity of sin, that it is serious. Sin is deadly, and Jesus died to save us from our sin, not so that we would continue in it. We can't play with it. Secondly, we see that sin prevents, or church discipline prevents sin from permeating the whole body. It prevents sin from permeating the whole body. That if it doesn't get stopped, and he shows it here to be like a yeast, and yeast leavens the entire lump, meaning it travels through the, the entire part of the dough, and it permeates every part of it. And sin, left unchecked, will permeate the entire body of Christ, just like food dye. You've, you've played with food dye before, whether you're doing Easter eggs, you've worked with whatever you have. You put in a little food dye, and what happens to that entire cup or that entire glass? It permeates it, does it not? See, that's what happens when sin is left unchecked. When we place sin unchecked and put it into the body of Christ and we don't do anything about it, everybody else thinks, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal, they're doing it, why can't I? And here, the scripture is showing us that it, if, when we practice church discipline, it prevents the sin from permeating the body. Permeating the body. And, and not only that, but it promotes purity. It promotes purity. I want you to turn with me to 1 uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. And that is on page 993. 993. And actually, this goes back to the other point, prevents sin from permeating the body. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, we read this. Uh, Paul is writing to young Timothy, who is uh, stepping into this. He's this leader of a church at Ephesus. And he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in what? What is that word? Fear. Fear. To stop the permeation of sin in the body. To rebuke them in the presence of all. When we practice church discipline, it prevents sin from permeating the body. But it also promotes purity. Now, how does it promote purity? It shows us what is bad, but by showing us what is bad, it also shows us what is good. And today, we have a lot of people who say that they are Christian, but their life doesn't bear the effect of that name that they profess. Just because you make a profession doesn't mean you have possession. Just because you say that you're a Jesus follower, you go to an evangelical church, you might even be a deacon, an elder, or a Sunday school teacher, that does not mean that you are saved. You have, we have many people within the so-called church today that are, and I, I hate this title, progressive Christians, which basically is their way of saying that I can be a Christian and still say that this sinful thing is okay. God's Word says No. No, this unmasks error for what it is. It rebukes sin. It shows sin for being evil. And it also promotes purity within the body of Christ. Now, here's the fourth thing it does. It not only promotes purity, but it glorifies God. It glorifies God. It upholds His holiness. Church discipline upholds 
God's holiness and glorifies his name. Now, there's a, a story um, of Moses. When Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, the people were extremely thirsty. They wanted water. And they cried out to Moses saying, it would be better if we went back to Egypt because we're dying of thirst here. And, and he's calling out, they're calling out to Moses. And God says to Moses, go to the rock, speak to the rock. And when you do, water will come out and it will, will, give all of the, it will nourish all of the people and satisfy all of their thirst. So Moses stands in front of the people. He rebukes them. And rather than speak to the rock like God says, he takes a staff and he strikes it twice. And then water comes out. But God says to him in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, and you can turn there if you want to on page 128. If not, I can just read it for you. But in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, God says to him, this, is, this isn't cool, Moses. He says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What did Moses fail to do? He uphold, failed to uphold God as holy, meaning that he failed to do precisely what God told him to do, and he suffered the penalty for it. See, when we do what God wants us to do by following this pattern of church discipline, we are upholding his holiness. We are bringing glory to his name to show that he is absolutely distinct, that he is the pure and holy, righteous God. We were praying before we came out as a worship team today. And one of the things that we asked God for forgiveness for was entertaining low thoughts of God. Many of us in this room have extremely low thoughts of God. We think of God just slightly better than ourselves. We fail to understand how holy and how separate and how magnificent and how powerful and how wrathful and how righteous He really and truly is. That God is so eminently above us. And though he is tolerating now man to continue on in his sin, he will not always do so. That God will bring his judgment. And that the whole world will see his glory. And so when we're doing what God wants us to do now, we are glorifying his name. By following this pattern of church discipline, we are bringing glory to the holy, righteous name of God. Now, we've talked a great deal about the purpose of church discipline. Let us now look at the process of church discipline. And let's get back to our passage in Matthew chapter 18. And it's pretty easy to tell. It doesn't take a tremendous exegete. It doesn't take us learning every Greek word involved in this passage to get a full understanding of what's going on here. First of all, we can see in this process, in verse 15, what we are to do. If your brother sins against you, it, means, it can mean brother or sister, someone who sins against you or who is in sin. Matter of fact, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have against you. They just have, if your brother is in sin, you can go and you are to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So what does that mean? This process involves going to tell your brother or sister their sin privately. It involves confronting the erring brother or sister privately. You pull them alongside and you say, what are you doing? What are you doing in your life? Why aren't you, why aren't you spending time with your kids? Why do you keep playing around with this porn? Why aren't you loving your wife the way that God desires you to love your wife and children? Why are you watching those shows? Why are you tolerating that in your life? Is that pure, whatever is noble? Whatever is praiseworthy? Are you dwelling on such things? Why do you allow that into your home? 
And if they respond favoritively and they say, yes, you're right, I'm not going to do that anymore. You've won your brother or sister. It ends right there. But if they continue in sin and you give them some measure of time, my recommendation, gives them some time to think about it, process it, you come back, and if they don't listen, they say, I'm, I, I don't care what you say, I'm going to continue in it. Then we go on to the next step. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this st- second step involves coming to them with a godly pair of others. Bring other people that you know are godly. Not people that you can manipulate to convince of your side of the truth. People that are men or women of integrity that stand for the word of God, that pursuing the person of God, that seeks to follow and do the purpose of God. That you are to bring them and they will establish to show that this is a, this is a serious situation. This isn't just my opinion. This is other people that are, are agreeing with me that what you're doing then is wrong. And if they say, you know you're right, I'm going to stop it. Then you've won your brother. Step, it's over. But if they fail to listen again, then it gets ramped up even further. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So this third step means um, publicly before the entire church body. And we do this in our family meetings. When we have our membership together and we say that someone is, we, we have discovered that someone is in sin, they are not repentant. And most, most discipline issues, by the way, take place within steps one and step two. Rarely do we go to the third step, but we have. And we will. We're not afraid to do that. But a lot of times, stuff happens behind the scenes. So we bring it publicly before the entire church body. Now, some people will say, well, then I don't want to be a member. That's the process. I don't want to do it. Or I resign my membership. That doesn't stop the process. We're going to go through with the process anyway. We're going to continue to do this because God's word says that we are to do it. To show that sin is serious to show the erring brother that this is not a figment of our imagination. It's not a simple misunderstanding. This is sin in the presence of a holy God. Now, if they repent, then it goes no further. Then it it stops right there. But if they do not respond favorably then, then it means putting them out of the church. Putting them out of the church. Now, this is the, the most difficult step to do. Now, what does it mean putting them out of the church? It means withdrawing fellowship, koinonia, biblical fellowship from them. Now here we see in our text that we're to treat him as a tax collector or a Gentile. What does that mean? Jesus obviously ate with tax collectors and Gentiles, and he was criticized for it. So what does that mean? And looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, we read earlier, that we're not even to eat with such a one who's continuing on in unrepentant sexual immorality. Not meaning the people of this world, but people who call themselves brother or sisters in Christ. So what then does that mean? It means that we don't allow them to communion. See, the church, um, observing church in the early church didn't have a building like we had. It met in people's homes. And there was an intimate fellowship of acceptance. And here they're saying they cannot partake of communion because of how serious it is. That they cannot just willingly crucify the Lord all over again. Not understanding what his sacrifice meant. That it meant to free us from sin, not that we would continue in it any longer that God is holy, and that they should not even eat. We should not have communion and that type of biblical koinonia fellowship with them, that we are to withdraw that type of fellowship from them. Now, does that mean that they don't ever come to church again? No, they should come and hear the word of God, but there is no close fellowship with them. There's a continual call to repentance, 
a continual call for them to live in holiness and in the fear of God. Now, why does God want us to do this? See, in exercising church discipline, we're showing a person their position before God. This reveals their position before God. This is showing from a human perspective what God has said from a heavenly perspective. And we see this when Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3-5, through 5, which we had already highlighted on page 954, and in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. By the way, let's get, a, let's get rid of this ridiculous notion and misquotation when Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Because Paul is saying clearly here that there is a judgment that is taking place within the body of Christ in the church. And people say Christians need to stop judging. They're misunderstanding the context of the verse. Here, Paul is saying, you make a judgment. You clearly say that they are in sin. You don't let them continue on in it. And he says in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, because within the assembled body, God's spirit is present, you are, deliver this, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, that is not friendly language. He's saying this person has claimed they are a believer in Christ, clearly not performing of it, withdraw all fellowship from them, this intimate koinonia fellowship, and give them over to the devil. That's not playing around. That is not tolerant language. That says, I'm okay, you're okay. This says that you are under the very judgment of God so much that God is going to withdraw his favor on your life and hand you over to the devil. Now, Paul practiced this himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, and that's on page 991, he talks about this. He says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. See, our hope is that when we remove someone from fellowship and hand them over to Satan, we don't do so for their condemnation. We do so in the hope of their restoration. That there will be an understanding and a repentance and a confession of sin. See, our hope is that when we remove someone from fellowship, that they will be taught God's ways are best. But if they do not repent, then they show that they were never part of God's people to begin with. Now, what else does church discipline show? It underscores the power he gives to his church. The power that God gives to his church. Now, I love how Mark Dever puts it. He puts it this way. He says, notice to whom one finally appeals in these situations. What court has the final word? It is not a bishop or pope or a presbytery. It is not an assembly, a synod, a convention, or a conference. He says, it is not even a pastor or a board of elders, a board of deacons, or a church committee. It is quite simply the church. That is the assembly of those individuals, individual individuals, believers, or individual believers who are the church. See, God gives, God gives great power to the church, to the local church and the members in it. As he says in our passage for today in verse 18, Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two 
If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, most often we've heard this last verse uh, as a means of talking about prayer meetings. Wherever two or three are gathered in, in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's not the context. The context is church discipline that is going on within this body. And we see here that it shows, when coupled with verse 18, that it means that Peter, who's upon, his rock, uh, upon this rock, Peter, he would build his church, but this foundational authority that Jesus had given unto Peter is extended to the entire community of disciples, giving them the authority to declare the terms under which God forgives or refuses to forgive the sin of wayward disciples. In that, the decisions made by the church about what behavior is permissible or unacceptable reflect decisions already made by God in heaven. See, God has given this unbelievable power to the church. Did you know it's so powerful that, that the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that we will judge angels? Think about that. These are heavenly realities that we haven't even begun to understand of which we are doing, and, and the Scripture is showing us now that what we do then on earth, in this church, it is a reflection of what God has decreed in heaven itself. Now, people say today, uh, I'll just leave that church. It doesn't remove the judgment of God on that person's life. That God's judgment has been played out. And this obviously removes any, any, any person's idea that they can just float from church to church. We see that God gives priority to the local assembly of believers, of which we are to be, to be committed. Now, what is the goal of church discipline? The, product, the judgments that are, um, that are done when we issue judgment, it's not to shame a person. It's not to put them out of the church forever. Let's look at the product of church discipline. Where does it lead? Discipline is meant to bring about Repentance. Church discipline is meant to bring about repentance. Repentance. That's why he says, if you've won your brother, that's great. Leave it there. It's to bring about them turning away from their sin to the Savior. We've gained our brother. Repentance, then, should lead to restoration. Restoration. Turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1. That's page 975, or 964. Maybe that's 9, actually, no, 975, excuse me. 975, and Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, and he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, the goal is repentance and restoration. And when we don't restore, after a believer has repented, God is not happy which is exactly what happened in Corinth. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, page 964. I'm sorry I'm skipping through a lot of different passages today, but um, we need to get a full understanding of what discipline is. And Paul, in speaking about a repentant brother or sister in Christ, on page 964, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, says, For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, meaning that he had repented, and you need to restore him back to fellowship, that he's back 
it shouldn't always be the permanent scarlet letter over his life. That he has been restored to full fellowship within the body of Christ. Now, we actually had an instance of church discipline when I first came here. Where we found out a, some, some, um, a man in the church had been in a variety of different sins. And he, he had been hiding it from the, the leadership. And it came to light. And we confronted him about it. And he um, refused to talk with us. We tried to take two or three. He refused to answer the door. He refused to answer his phone. He said, I'm leaving the church, so just leave me alone. We said, no. We went through the process. We brought it before the greater family of believers. And then we excommunicated him, removed him from our fellowship. And um, recently, we had contact with him again because he has repented of his sin, which is a praise to the Lord. And what happened was, is that we handed him basically over to the devil. And what happened is, is he started engaging in more and more sins until he was um, doing a lot of drugs and messing a lot around a lot and getting really intoxicated so much that he went out at 7 a.m. one morning. He'd already completely intoxicated that he went to go get more alcohol, got into his brand new truck, crashed into four other cars, and then rammed into a tree. He was so intoxicated that when the police showed up, he couldn't even open the door. They had to shatter the window in order to even get him out. And then they put him into the pokey, and as he was in the pokey and he's sobering up, he realizes where his life had gone, that he had been holding on to his sin. And then he repented of his sin in the middle of the jail cell with tears in his eyes. He got down on his knees. Now, he repented to God, but that doesn't mean God removes all consequences. So after he's released from jail, he gets fired from his job. He loses his truck, which he couldn't fix because he didn't have insurance on it. He wasn't even to be driving. And it was his third mark, so he ends up having to go to prison. And before that, he comes to meet with our elder team. And he says to us, he goes, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew when I saw you, I didn't want to meet with you because I knew that I was in the middle of sin. And when you removed fellowship from me, that in essence gave him over to the evil one, where God showed him what life is like apart from God's blessing and protection over him. And therefore he came to the end of himself, and then he was repentant, and it was our joy to restore him, even though he was going off to prison. But we said, he is repentant. That is something to rejoice over. That he is repentant and been restored unto God. And we said, brother, you are restored. You consider yourself completely okay in the eyes of this church. And though you're going to prison, we're going to pray for you because we recognize that you have come to the end of yourself and you have turned back to God what, you, what church discipline is meant to do. See, the reality is that when we practice church discipline and they repent, God says that in essence what we are doing is rescuing them from death. We are rescuing them from death. We see this in James chapter 5. Turn with me to James chapter 5, which is on page um, 1013. If you're not that all familiar with your Bible, it is near the end of the New Testament. A very small book, five chapters long. And James, at the very last part of it, it's actually the very last verse of James, he says, My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In the book of Jude, we see this too, that we're snatching them from the fire because they are sealing their own fate. They are turning from God and they are, in essence, they're going to die apart from 
Christ because it's showing that they really never were saved. And our goal is to help rescue them, to show them the error of their ways, to bring them back and rescue them from death. Now, author and teacher, Dr. Howard Hendricks, tells the story of a young man who had strayed from God but was finally brought back by the help of a friend who really loved him. When there was was full repentance and restoration, Hendricks asked this Christian how he felt when he was away from the Lord, and this is what he said. He said it was like being out at sea in deep water, deep trouble, and all his friends were on the shore hurling biblical accusations at him about justice, penalty, and wrong. He said, but there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to get me and would not let me go. I fought him, but he pushed aside my fighting, grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and took me to shore. And by the grace of God, he was the reason I was restored. He would not let me go. See, church discipline is showing a person that you are in the midst of sin. It hurts us so much that we're going to confront you. We're going to go after you. We're going to pursue you. But if you don't repent, then we're going to withdraw fellowship to show how serious this is. Now, many Christians, unfortunately, in their failure to understand Scripture, think that they know better than God does. And they say, surely God doesn't want us to do this. Yes, He does. Unequivocally, yes, He does. To say that you know better than God, and to say, I'm not going to withdraw fellowship in that way, they're never going to be brought to repentance, and they're going to stay in their deathly state, and possibly die apart from Christ, and go to hell. Which means that it's not love you're showing, but it's actually hate. Because if you love them, you're going to do what the Scripture says for them. If you hate them, you're going to take matters into your own hands and say you know better than God and in essence doom their soul to hell. So we have to make sure that we are following God's word above everything. Now what happens if we fail to do church discipline? Well, we have four losses. These aren't your notes, but I would encourage you to write them down. First of all, there's a loss of purity. There's a loss of purity. If we give into one issue, what is to prevent us from giving in on the next? We see this with many churches today that they are continually giving in and saying, oh, okay, society says this is okay, then we want to say it's okay because we don't want to offend anyone. Let me tell you right now, the gospel is offensive to every single person because it says that we are sinners. It says that we can't save ourselves, that we are indicted and condemned because of our sin. It is offensive. The gospel is offensive. It is not tolerant. It is extremely intolerant because God is intolerant of sin then we must make sure that we understand that if we fail to do it, we'll have a loss of purity. Secondly, there's a loss of power. I've been asking myself this question. Why do we not see the conversions that we should be seeing? Why is our church not continuing to grow? I I, I believe that God wants to grow our church extremely. And we've seen it begin to swell and then to go back down and swell. And I think part of it's because we're failing to discipline and confront, not just as, as leaders, but as members of the body that we think we show up on Sunday and then we go and that's it. That is not what God tells us to be and do. That we're to speak the truth in love, caring about one another, saying, why are you doing that, brother? Why do you do that, sister? How is your walk with going? How is your marriage? It's not always the leaders and the elders' job. It is our job, if we are a kingdom of priests, to speak the truth in love and not allow them to continue in sin. To speak and uphold righteousness, even though the whole world comes against us. That we are to speak the truth in love. So we'll have a loss of purity, a loss of power. And we see that actually, by the way, in Joshua chapter 7, when Achan held on to his sin. What happened to the nation of Israel when they went into battle? They lost. 
See, we will lose spiritual battles and fail to make, fail to make headway if we tolerate sin. And that means one member holding on to their sin. Be transparent. Be confe- open yourself up and let people speak truth into your life so that you might confess your sin and live toward God. Now, thirdly, we can see there's a loss of progress. A church that refuses to practice church discipline will see its ministry decline. That's why you see many of our mainline and liberal churches today dying at a a fast rate because they've turned away from the Word of God. And I remember hearing, and I've shared this before, Ed Stetzer, who is a missiologist, someone who studies mission and working in churches, he was speaking to a conference of mainline pastors. And he was speaking about the exclusivity of Christ, that Christ alone is the one through whom we are saved. And one of these liberal mainline pastors spoke up, and he he said, we want to know why our churches aren't growing, and how do our churches grow? And then um, Stetzer started talking about proclaiming the Word of God, extending the, the person of God, and the pastor raised his hand again, and he said, well, how do we have our churches grow if we don't believe that Jesus is the only way? It's the pastor. And I love what Stetzer said. He goes, the first thing you need to do is repent. Because what you're holding is a sinful doctrine. It's false teaching. That the scripture is unequivocal, unapologetic. That there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. So we have a loss of progress. And lastly, there is a loss of purpose. As his ambassadors to a lost and dying world, God has called the church to be a holy people a people who, standing out as distinct from the world, proclaim the excellencies of the works of God in Christ. If this is to occur, we must be different from the world. And church discipline helps us to both remember and maintain that purpose. One of the recurring judgments against the church today is demonstrated in various polls taken across the country is the fact that there is little or no difference between the church and the secular world when it comes to attitudes, values, morals, and lifestyle. We've lost our sense of purpose. See, church discipline brings that back to show that God's purposes will triumph, that we don't care what the world says, that we're going to do what God wants us to do. So I want to finish with four challenges today. I have a challenge for you, actually three challenges. And I want to say, what does this mean for all of us? Well, first of all, here's what it means. And My challenge to you is this. Choose Christ over complacency. Choose Christ over complacency. And what I mean is this. If you want to sit by and let this sermon mean nothing, then fine. But don't call yourself a Christian. If you want to follow Christ, then do what His Word says. And that means stepping out of your comfort zone and stop being complacent. You want to know why you don't have power in your life? It's because you're not doing what God's Word has said to do. You're either tolerating sin and holding on to it, or you're just, you don't care, which means that you're unredeemed, that you're not, you're unregenerated, that you're on a express train to hell. Choose Christ over complacency. Secondly, I'm challenging you to commit to his church, to commit to his body. Why are you putting it off? Why are you putting off committing to the body of Christ when you can clearly see within Scripture that the body was committed to one another? Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are over 50 one another commands, meaning that they were together, they were committed together, which means committing to one another in a bond of covenant of membership, that we're committing to this, that we should choose to bond and be a part of His church. And lastly, I'm challenging you to care enough to confront those who are in the midst of sin. 
It's not my job. It's not the elder's job. It's not David's job. We're to help train you to do the work of ministry. It's your job. I challenge you to care enough for your brothers and sisters in Christ to confront them for those in the midst of sin. Well, there it is. Let me say that at Village Bible Church, we do seek to be a place of grace. Even though we're talking about church discipline, we are a church that dispenses and seeks to dispense grace, where we lovingly pursue one another for reconciliation and restoration as our goal so that we might live holy lives to the glory of God. We want to do life together, and that means speaking the truth in love. We give grace because we know that God gives grace to us. We want reconciliation and restoration so that God's name might receive glory and we might increase in joy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, Lord, we want your word. We want your presence. We want the power of your spirit to be in our midst. Lord, we ask that you manifest yourself. Lord, may we pursue the, 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 the manifestation of the spirit. May we seek to commune with you. And Lord, help us to do business with you, not tolerating sin, letting not, let not sin reign in our mortal bodies. But Lord, may we be bold for the glory of your name. Lord, give us a holy unction, a holy fire to seek your purpose passionately for our lives. To Lord, to open ourselves up, to let your spirit speak truth into our lives. And Lord, if there be the mold of sin, may we expose it to the light and life of Christ that it might be killed and forsaken. Lord, we want to see your glory made known in this place. We want to see people come to the saving knowledge of who you are. Lord, we're, we're tired of playing nice. We're, we're, we're tired of just going through the motions. We ask that you be God in our midst as you have promised to do when we seek your face. So Lord, help us to follow your word and to commit ourselves to you radically for the glory of your name. And Lord, for those that are here that are holding on to their sin, I pray that you convict them. Help them to see the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for their sin. That you you sent your son to die to set us free from sin, not so that we might have an excuse to continue any longer in it. And for those that are just sitting on the sidelines that aren't doing anything, Lord, I pray that you might shock them awake and see how you have purposed and gifted them to serve your people for the glory of your name. And for those who are, who are walking closely with you, Lord, I pray that you might encourage them, let them know that you are near. And for those that are struggling, I pray that you show them that you are the God who cares and that you will, you will show your presence and your sovereignty in their life. So, Lord, we ask you to glorify your name in our midst for the glory, honor, and praise of your most holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.